0: Just to start off, centennial anniversaries present opportunities to review, refocus, and perhaps revise received histories. We did not want to let this year pass without taking a backward glance at O'Neill, with whose death in 1616 the Annals of the Four Masters draw to a close. It's an honor and a pleasure for us today to offer this seminar in which scholars will assess the great O'Neill, the man, his milieu, his battles, exile and legacy. And I'd now like to call on uh, Professor Nicholas Canney, who's a member of the Academy, a former president of the Academy, uh, Emeritus Professor of History at Galway University for 30 years until 2009, and founding director of the Moore Institute at Galway. He's a much-published historian of the Atlantic world, and his PhD thesis focused on Hugh O'Neill. Today, Professor Kenny will revisit Hugh O'Neill in a lecture tellingly entitled, The Several Faces of Hugh O'Neill, Professor Canny.
1: Thanks very much, Siobhan, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm not sure it's a pleasure to be speaking again of Hugh O'Neill and that it brings me back to my childhood. Uh, and at least to my academic childhood, and that my first ever publications were on Hugh O'Neill, uh, but also I became interested in Hugh O'Neill even my, in my undergraduate years, and that's why we'll begin with the first face of Hugh O'Neill, the face of Hugh O'Neill that I was exposed to as an undergraduate student, which was before most of you were born, and that I was an undergraduate from 1961 uh, to 1964. And when it came to studying 16th century Ireland, and this is for those of you who are Uh, who have studied history academically. The literature to which we exposed was uh, a literature that practically no undergraduate today would consider reading. The amount of literature was very small. Uh, The standard reference book was Bagwell's three volumes, Ireland under the Tudors, which was effectively a summary of the state papers of Ireland. Uh, Apart from that, there were a limited number of fairly interesting papers that had been written by historians of of, uh, the generation before mine. Uh, David Quinn had written some articles on the administration of Ireland in the late 15th and early 16th century, not very exciting stuff based on his PhD thesis in the University of London. Uh, Quinn had written a few more interesting articles on colonization and discovery, uh, particularly one on Sir Thomas Smith which I think every historian of the 16th century still reads and he had also had done a book on Raleigh and the British empire which had uh, a chapter on the Munster plantation and he also had published an article on the Munster plantation in the Cork Ar- archaeological journal so that uh, these were interesting articles uh, besides that uh, my own mentor uh, G.A. Hayes McCoy had written on the 16th century and he'd written two very stimulating and readable articles on the Army of Ulster and strategy, which was published in the Irish Sword and Strategy and Tactics and Irish Warfare. These were the two principal ar- articles that had a bearing on the subject we'll be speaking about today. Uh, but apart from that, you had uh, Dudley Edwards' Church and State and Tudor Ireland, which was in many respects an appalling book. And if you wanted to move further than that into the early 17th century, you had Moody's London Derry Plantation. Uh, and that was more or less the range of literature uh, which was available, apart from biographical studies. So that you had Dunnock Bryan, uh, the great Earl of Kildare, and you had Sean O'Fuilon, The Great O'Neill. So that I will start with Sean O'Fuilon, The Great O'Neill because effectively uh, that is what first introduced me uh, to The Great O'Neill, first published in 1942 and probably still in print. Uh, so that O'Fuilon was an inspiration to me at that particular juncture because O'Fuilon could write in a way that Dudley Edwards couldn't write. So the, the ability to write was really the major problem that historians of that older generation had and that uh, I think that I have always worked hard in writing clearly. uh, Some of the older generation didn't have so that O'Fuelon had the benefit over historians in that O'Fuelon was a literary figure and he could bring uh, the material alive. Now as I come to O'Fuelon, he was not a historian. He was um, effectively a novelist primarily, although he he took an interest in historical biography and as far as the Hugh O'Neill one was concerned, he had uh, based it on a, an, a master's thesis in Queen's University of Belfast by a man called Graham, uh, which was largely based on the state papers. I have many years ago read the Graham thesis as well. Uh, so that in that sense, that gave the sketch of the narrative to him. The narrative was largely outlined uh, by the state papers. And that uh, uh, Ophelon got many things wrong. Uh, and uh, in that sense, I suppose he is much uh, reviled and rejected, uh, but uh, whereas I still praise him because uh, he he inspired me, he interested me in history in the first interest. interest. He got many things wrong, for instance, by believing uh, that Hugh O'Neill spent a large po- po- part of his early career in England, and that in that sense it was an English upbringing uh, which expi- explains the emergence of this Unusual uh, character. There were many anachronisms in the text as well, and I have you a few passages here before you, uh, <clears throat> and that I would suggest that uh, when uh, O'Furlon uh, thought of O'Neill at war, he was thinking very much in terms of the war which had recently occurred in Ireland, the War of Independence. So that in that sense, he sees him as if conducting a guerrilla warfare from his friends and spies in Dublin, no no doubt. He received full report of what the council was doing. In that sense, he was... uh, You you just get the impression that the Irish War of Independence and Michael Collins' espionage system was really what was most in the mind of O'Fuilon when he was trying to uh, reconstitute uh, what happened uh, way back in the 16th century. Uh, (coughs) Similarly, uh, uh, as he depicts O'Neill here, Uh, While in Irish uh, Civil War terms, O sympathies were with the Irregulars, uh, reading this particular passage, you more or less get the impression that he's giving a portrayal of Michael Collins, and that uh, understood that uh, a total victory was out of the question. He was an able politician, an able general, and the only big man in all of Irish history from the beginning uh, to the end of that dual order. I think using the term the big man would suggest that this is the Michael Collins of the 16th century uh, that he's talking about. And similarly, uh, he is not only a big man, but he is a great man. So writing it in 1942, you get the impression that he is uh, seeing O'Neill as uh, the equivalent of the great man of the mid-20th century, who was above all of the pygmies who lived about him and who was attempting to shape the world uh, unilaterally. I don't think I have quoted any passage there. Uh, but uh, but that was certainly a factor uh, that was in his mind, uh, the experience of the big man of the 20th century. Uh, <coughs> but in spite of this, in spite of what we might see as the shortfallings uh, of uh, O'Fuilon, and he, again he sees him uh, as a nationalist, uh, the first national figure that comes, uh, very as we will see later, uh, that comes very much from 19th century representations of, of O'Neill. Uh, but uh, while we might see anachronisms and defects and inaccuracies in him, uh, nonetheless he had some very important ideas. Uh, on the basic... N- narrative of the war itself which takes up most of the Ophuilon biography he took that very much from Hayes McCoy who was his principal advisor on military matters so that in that sense he was consistent uh, with scholarship of the time Uh, but he had uh, some big ideas which went against uh, some of the points which he made and some of the quotations I have there in front of you Uh, but in that sense he came up with the idea that O'Neill had not wished to fight and that therefore for 25 years of his life he had avoided a coming into conflict uh, with the crown. And that went against uh, the older uh, nationalist interpretations advanced by Mitchell or the inherited interpretation from the more popular literature uh, that O'Neill had always intended to go to war and that everything he did uh, before he entered into open conflict was deceiving the government in England and that he was uh, building up, uh, getting lead for his roof etc. etc. But that it was always been fixed in his mind that he was going to war. Whereas O'Frielan had the idea that he didn't intend to go to war, or at least at various junctures in the O'Frielan text, uh, that is the proposition that he made, uh, that he was making. Uh, that again O'Fuilon sees him as unusual he was not representative of the gold Gaelic order recognizing that he had a different formation from most people uh, uh, who had grown up in Gaelic Ulster comparing him with, with turlach linnock not because uh, he was of a, a different spirit from them but because his formation was different having been brought up in the Pale and uh, even though he wasn't a historian, he appreciated that there was a great limit. To the amount of evidence that was available on Hugh and that insofar as he was understood at all he was understood principally by people who saw him from the outside mostly people who were his detractors and that in that sense there was very little written evidence that he himself where he explained the various courses in his life Uh, he doesn't explain why he undertakes particular actions at particular times. Uh, On the other hand, while recognizing that there was a limit in the evidence that was there, uh, O'Fuilon fell into the same trap as most other who had written about Hugh O'Neill of making it up when the evidence isn't there so that in that sense the most imaginative stories he brings out is, you know, during these three or four years we don't know what O'Neill was doing and then the next sentence he goes on and saying he was doing the following thing. Uh, so that in that sense there's huge uh, scope to the imagination uh, because uh, there is a, a, a lack of evidence. O'Fuilon also recognised that there was a sharp difference in the religious attitudes of O'Neill in the earlier part of his career and in the later part of his career. In that sense as we will see he diverged from some previous interpreters of O'Neill, particularly in the centuries before that. But he sees that in terms of him being a champion of Catholicism that this becomes a feature of the 1590s rather than the earlier part of his career. And he sees that this is, is something that has to be explained. He doesn't provide a proper explanation for it, but he sees it's a factor uh, for which there is no satisfactory uh, answer at the time. Uh, I I could give you some of the quotations which he gives, but it's, it's quite clear that he sees it as a developmental stage in O'Neill's career, and that once he engages in war, that somehow or other he becomes entrapped by the war. Once he has taken up the uh, unfurl, the flag would be the term that Mitchell uses, but once this has happened, that he becomes a victim of the system into which he has uh, drawn, allowed himself to be drawn, and that in that sense he moves, Uh, uh, beyond what his initial intentions or ambitions would have been, although O'Fuilon doesn't tell us what these ambitions might have been. So that's the first face of Hugh O'Neill to which I was exposed. It was one which interested me in asking some of the questions which O'Fuilon hadn't answered uh, satisfactorily, and uh, it was that which inspired me to take, to decide to undertake a master's thesis in history uh, with Hayes McCoy as my supervisor and Hayes McCoy's method of supervising students was uh, first of all to discourage them because his own experience in the 1930s had been that doing postgraduate work in history uh, didn't necessarily lead to employment so that he would only permit you to undertake uh, postgraduate work in history if you did a higher diploma in education first, this being a kind of an insurance policy uh, for a career as a school teacher so I wasted a year of my life Doing Dip and then did begin to do a master's in history. And his procedure in deciding in a thesis was to give you a card on which the title of a thesis was written, and then you chose one or the other. So I got the choice between doing amphibious warfare during the Nine Years' War uh, or uh, doing the Okahan Affair. And I decided opted for the Okahan Affair. So that uh, on which my first article was based, that was uh, an article. Uh, speculating on why the flight of the earls had occurred. But this was based on a substantial amount of archival research which I have hardly ever drawn on at all, uh, covering the career of Hugh O'Neill between the defeated Kinsale and the flight of the earls in 1607. And uh, in that sense this is the second face of Hugh O'Neill uh, that I was exposed to. The face of Hugh O'Neill as it was revealed through the documents of the time. And if you're interested in uh, I'm sure Hiram Morgan, who's doing a biography of Hugh O'Neill, will tell us how many letters by Hugh O'Neill survive from different phases in his career. But I would think that there's probably more letters written by himself during this short interlude of time than there is at any other period. And that he was in, in fairly regular correspondence, uh, particularly from 1603 uh, to the flight of the earls in 1607. Uh, That uh, the phases you see that I was exposed to here were first of all uh, the relentless warfare in which he was engaged in Ulster uh, immediately after uh, the Battle of Kinsale until his final uh, surrender at Melifont. And uh, it was quite clear that uh, he could have, there were several, he did have several opportunities of abandoning the country, getting his way into Scotland and presumably from Scotland and getting to mainland Europe but he fought relentlessly through this period of time, uh, completely disregarding uh, the havoc which continuing the warfare was rendering in the population of Ulster at the time, because the mortality levels were quite extraordinary. So that his pursuing the war to the bitter end in the same way as the Earl of Desmond pursuing war to the bitter end in Munster uh, 20 years previously seems to have been quite extraordinary, much the same of how what's going on in Syria today, that that the idea of surrendering seems to be totally beyond the mind of the individuals in question and there seems to be a total disregard for the human mortality uh, which is associated with holding on to the bitter end because he didn't have to surrender as I said, he could have fled. So that in that sense I didn't find this a particularly attractive character. But the benefit to him of holding on is that he held on long enough to the death of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, we are, it is suggested that he didn't know that Queen Elizabeth was dead when he surrendered. But he certainly, for somebody who had been comprehensively defeated in battle, he received extraordinary terms from Lord Montjoy. And then when he went to England to James the Sixth and First. Uh, he was dealing with a king who was certainly altogether more uh, open to the idea of accommodating a lord who had a, would have a significant degree of independence from a central government than Queen Elizabeth would ever have countenance. And that it is the terms which are conceded to him in London seem to be more generous than the terms which had been conceded uh, to him at Meliphant itself in that uh, he was granted title, he was granted a recovery of the lands which he had uh, forfeited, uh, and he was also appointed as Lord Lieutenant of his counties. In other words, he was given a, a martial law over the jurisdictions over which he governed. He was, to all intents and purposes, uh, granted a palatinate jurisdiction, uh, and uh, the crown officials had, to their utter dismay and horror, had very little authority uh, to interfere in his jurisdiction. And this more or less obtains from 1603 to 1605. Uh, And there is a As I would interpret it, there is a clear difference between the position uh, which he enjoyed and the position which Rory O'Donnell enjoyed during that particular interlude. When O'Neill came back, O'Neill still had authority uh, and he was attempting to govern his jurisdiction with the aid of those who were loyal to him and these were his immediate blood relatives, his brother uh, and uh, nephews and immediate blood relatives. And these were the people favored by him. Uh, whereas Rory O'Donnell, on the other hand, uh, didn't have proper authority over the O'Donnell groups and that his authority was always being subverted uh, by his own kinsmen. Whereas O'Neill was able to maintain control over his jurisdiction and was uh, relatively powerful within this jurisdiction, the problem being that it was the population was decimated, but he was, re- in a sense, compensating for the decimation of population by forcing the tillers of the soil to take up occupancy on the lands which he himself was occupying and therefore he was depriving uh, the other branches of the O'Neill family of cultivators of the soil. They were complaining to Crown officials and Crown officials didn't have the right of interference. So that in that sense, I would contend that during this interlude, he seemed to have got what he would like to have had at all stages. I have never found Hugh O'Neill an attractive person, uh, I might add, but uh, uh, he seemed to have got the Palatinate jurisdiction which he would have settled for at various junctures in his career, and that that, uh, this might have had a a continuing success were it not for the misfortunes of 1605. Uh, 1605 brought the death of Mountjoy, who was Devonshire at this stage, and also brought the Guy Fawkes plot. Uh, That During up to 1605, uh, effectively the arrangement that Mountjoy had put in place, it was remaining in place because Mountjoy wouldn't countenance interference with it and most particularly he wouldn't countenance any interference with O'Neill. Uh, that O'Neill was kind of the, the rock on which the arrangement in Ulster was going to remain stable and therefore he didn't want that removed. Once Mountjoy was gone then the minor officials led by Sir John Davies and Chichester who had always detested the arrangements that had been put in place had a free hand uh, to draw attention uh, to the inequities as they would have represented it, that had been introduced. Uh, and uh, then as well as that because of So the Guy Fawkes plot in England that everybody who was a Catholic uh, had the finger of suspicion pointed at them or the finger could be pointed fairly readily so that it it was easier to discredit him on religious grounds and to suggest that he was engaged in religious conspiracies and with Spain in order to go back on the arrangements that had been put in place. So in that sense, there's no doubt about it, in 1605 to 1607, there's a continuing conspiracy uh, to undermine his authority. Uh, But as I interpreted the evidence, and there is a substantial amount of evidence, it's not all made up, uh, that he still was determined to fight on. He was fighting on on the legal grounds in that uh, uh, the argument that Davies was bringing forward was that the arrangement that had been put in place in 1542 and that had been perpetuated uh, with the arrangement that had been conceded by James I was inequitable uh, to the collateral branches of the O'Neill family and that he was encouraging all of these to take legal cases against O'Neill on grounds of equity Uh, the the argument being that under the Gaelic system that these were rightful, occupied of their land and that that they that whereas he was claiming that the entire Lordship of Tyrone had been granted in fee simple to his grandfather and that he now held it as that had been awarded in 1542. And that, as well as that, when they were bringing uh, arguments forward that it was necessary uh, to introduce tenants-in-chief, he had no problem with doing that, provided that he could nominate who these tenants-in-chief were going to be, who were going to be his brothers, nephews, and sons, etc., so that in that sense the entire lordship was to be divided up absolutely to his immediate relatives, disregarding uh, the inheritors under the Gaelic system. Uh, and uh, the other argument, plausible argument, which Davies was uh, bringing forward, was that uh, the arrangements that had been conceded in 1542 in Tyrone were analogous to those that had been conceded uh, in uh, the Clanrickard and Thoman lordships. And if you look at the way that they are organised at this particular juncture, these are these have uh, div- are broken up into tenancies in chief and. Uh, that, as David would argue it, if the Earl of Tyrone uh, could advance a claim to having absolute ownership of the entire lordship of Tyrone, he is an intelligent man, he would uncertainly advance this before the law if he was capable of doing so. So therefore, by that comparison, uh, the argument that O'Neill was bringing forward was unreasonable. So these were the legal arguments that were being advanced, and that they were using the Ocahan disquiet or discontent uh, effectively as a test case, within uh, on which O'Neill's claim to his territory was going to be was going to rise or fall. And uh, uh, that uh, uh, O'Neill certainly life was becoming more difficult for him, but the the, the argument that I advanced then, and that the argument was one sustained by the evidence, is that O'Neill seemed very determined uh, to fight on. Uh, that there were various options open to him. Uh, uh, certainly he was going to have to appeal his case to the king, because the king was his only recourse. The king was taking the place of Montjoy previously. The king was the person who had made the arrangement, so therefore pleading to the king above the officials in Dublin was a logical thing to do. He did advance an argument that one of his options might be to take up residence in the court in England and to allow his son uh, to take over the lordship and to make the adjustment that would be necessary uh, to to the changed circumstances. Uh, arrangements of that kind had been considered uh, by the earl of desmond and many of the other lords in ireland had spent uh, the earl of tenricard for example was resident in london at this time so that it's not as as, as bizarre a suggestion as you might think and uh, james the sixth and first with arguing that he was going to have a court which included noblemen from Scotland and Ireland as well as from England. If there were very few from Ireland at his court, so the Tyrone joining it would not have been unreasonable. And then there was a suggestion that he was negotiating a marriage for his son with the daughter of the Earl of Argyle, giving him a Scottish connection which would have had appeal to the king. So that there were various options which he was working with and then suddenly he abandons the country in 1607. Uh, and uh, my argument is that he lost his nerve he certainly knew that going to london was risky he had gone to london at several junctures in his career before when there were risks involved and when there were charges against him i think the biggest of all was when he knew that o'donnell and Maguire were going to abandon the country going to london under that those circumstances would certainly have exposed him uh, to the charge of treason and he saw no option uh, but to take common cause with them. Uh, So that there was a second face of Hugh O'Neill that I was exposed to working through the evidence at this early stage of my career and finding him a fairly determined but also a fairly unattractive individual, unscrupulous in advancing himself and his immediate relatives regardless of who was going to be the loser in what negotiation was taking place. I don't know how time is going but uh, I think I'm okay. Uh, So the third uh, exposure that I had to him was in a later stage in my career when I was working earlier in in the 16th century and I came across regularly the emergence of the young Hugh Uh, O'Neill. And uh, again, Uh, The person who had a marginal existence, who to some degree had been disregarded by the crown, and then who suddenly uh, appeared to be useful to the crown, and who sought to advance himself and to acquire some of his family lands, or the ancestral lands, or the O'Neill ancestral lands, uh, on the southern fringes of Ulster, and to gradually build himself up Principally with the association of English captains with which wh- whom he had had dealings and with which whom he had become familiar earlier in his life, if we uh, take it for granted that he had been uh, brought up, or to a large degree, in the Havanan household, that the Havanans were effectively English captains, uh, and uh, that uh, that would have been his first exposure to how uh, fighting was to take place and how you were to advance yourself and that uh, he was uh, seeking to gain control of areas of land in the southern part of Ulster effectively by force principally at the expense of Turlock, O'Neill, imitating uh, the practice of English captains who were operating at the time, and then uh, when the English become more aggressive in Ulster, and particularly during the campaign of the First Earl of Essex, associating himself uh, closely with that episode, getting military training, and using uh, the support of English forces to undermine the authority of Turlough linoc oneill with a view to seizing control of some of the Lordship uh, of Tyrone, And uh, at the same time, uh, having greater claim than any of the English captains had by virtue of the fact that he had inherited uh, the title of Baron of Dungannon. But again, uh, in that early phase of his career, the other phase of Hugh O'Neill, again I didn't find him, he found him an unscrupulous single-minded person with a view to advancing himself by all means possible, uh, regardless of who was going to lose as he proceeded, and that he was happy to be an instrument of the crown if that suited himself and then later he tries to operate independently of the crown. Uh, and that, uh, at all of these stages, the I suppose the other face phase, phase of Hugh O'Neill to which we were being exposed was the one uh, which had been advanced by Micheline Kearney Walsh, who was looking at Hugh O'Neill uh, during the years after 1607, from then down to his death in uh, 1616. Uh, and that uh, the documents which she had been finding in the Spanish archives, again another significant body of O'Neill correspondence, were being edited in the Irish sword at the point uh, when I was uh, proceeding with uh, my MA thesis. So that when her book was published in 1986, there was relatively little in it uh, that she hadn't uh, published previously. Uh, that uh, she saw him in fairly uncomplicated uh, fashion as being uh, the champion of Catholicism. Uh, By looking at the documents of the later phase of his his career, she attempted to kind of project that backwards to the earlier phase of his career, so the the motivating factor at all stages, as far as she was concerned, uh, seemed to be uh, that of religion. And that... uh, uh, a more complex picture had been drawn in the introduction uh, to that book by Tommaso Fee, who I think was already a cardinal at this stage. It is very unusual to have a cardinal writing an introduction to your book, but nonetheless, Fee uh, saw. Uh, O'Neill as being a more complex character than Michel, uh, than, than Carney Walchedon. He was intrigued by the character and personality of O'Neill from all stages in his career, and then uh, uh, so that he was an amalgamation of Gaelic chieftain and Renaissance prince. This is a new phrase that has been inter- entered into the discourse and that uh, then he also recognizes that there wasn't a continuity in his religious allegiance, that uh, he was a man who was relatively indifferent to religion in the earlier part of his career. Uh, Yes, indifference he developed during the last decade in Ireland into an ardent figure of the Counter-Reformation. Uh, which raises the question, was he doing this because of true religious belief or because he saw the opportunity of using religion now as an opportunity of receiving uh, support from Spain? That Michelin and Carney Walsh, recognized that when O'Neill did go to the continent, that he immediately had an ambition to return. In that sense, he was no different from... uh, Hugh O'Donnell, after he had gone to Spain, immediately began to negotiate with the Spaniards to attempt uh, the reconquest of the country, or another invasion of the country. And that quite logically, O'Neill was doing so after he got himself to the continent and recognized Uh, that he had effectively lost everything uh, by abandoning the country, and the only way he could recover something by returning. That doesn't mean that that was the way in which he was thinking between 1603 and 1607, uh, that he was in different circumstances, he was thinking differently. And the Carney Walsh argument, uh, while it might appear novel, and she certainly is producing novel evidence from the Continental Archives, it's not significantly different from the Catholic argument that had been advanced in the 19th century and which is associated uh, 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 most especially by C. P. Meehan. Now I think most of my time is gone, and I had intended to bring you to some of the nineteenth century authors from which these arguments are still, we might bring this out in discussion later. But I would say the principal issues that remain to be addressed is uh, if we are to understand O'Neill properly, I think we need to have a compilation of all of the correspondence that he engaged upon in one place at one time. As I looked at this material, and and I never looked at it together, but I've always wondered who were the authors of the various letters and documents which he wrote. Looking at the material between 1603 and 1607, and certainly looking at the, 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 the debates he has with Davies, I have no doubt in my mind that he was being closely advised by somebody who was conversant with the English common law. In that sense, the probability is that it was a lawyer who was writing the documents rather than writing the documents himself. Uh, Similarly, I think some of the earlier statements are the the, 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 the statements of the 1590s when he was at war. I would say that these were probably inspired, if not written, by the clergy, the Catholic clergy who were influencing him at this time. Uh, To what degree O'Neill wrote anything by himself uh, is a question that I have in my mind. Uh, Was he a man of letters at all? He certainly was literate. uh, But being literate doesn't mean that you necessarily write fluent argumentative letters. Uh, And in that sense, I think that a good study could be done by a stylistic analysis of the various letters in his name that exist from different junctures of time. And I think at that point, we might have a clearer notion of those who influenced him or those who he drew upon in order to support him. I think unquestionably in the 1590s it was a clerical influence and there's no doubt in my mind that in the period that I have looked close to that it was he had some people who were training in English law